We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. Therese, you had an interaction on Carl's Facebook page uh, a couple weeks ago where there was an interesting interaction because Carl had posted some information from his blog and a conversation started around the topic of contemplation and persons of color and silence and silencing. And I know we've, we touched on it a little bit already and you've hinted that like you're a little nervous about that. Is there some, some, something else that you'd like to flesh out there or do you feel like we've covered that in a way that you feel comfortable with? So I guess what I could add, there's a book written by, she was, uh, I forget where she is now, but she was the president of Columbia Theological Seminary. Her name is Serene Jones, and she has a book called Trauma and Grace. Yes. And and actually, now there's a second edition of her book, and she actually has added a chapter on race and trauma. Mm -hmm. One of the things I learned from reading Serene's book is that trauma, the, the main characteristic of trauma is silence, actually. It silences you. And so that can happen in many kinds of ways. Like, for example, what I was trying to tell you earlier is that mm. um, being wiped out of the history and not knowing it, being being of I've done my DNA four times. So I know <laughs> being from whomever those people were that came through the Middle Passage, I came here and, and um, even though we somehow managed to actually still keep some of our culture and history through the centuries. I don't, there's a lot I don't know. So if it's written out, some things I have no defense against. I can't Mm -hmm. argue about it or write a book about it or or anything because I don't know myself. It's been taken from me. That's Mm -hmm. a silencing. Right, right. The 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 slaves the enslaved when when they couldn't talk to each other they weren't allowed to when they were in the middle passage on the ship they were separated so that they couldn't be with other people with the same language so that is silencing and all of those types of silences things that keep you it it may not be a, you know trauma doesn't have to be something physical where a bone is broken or blood is seen or anything like that, but anything that silences you and keeps you from defending yourself against something coming against you is trauma. And I, and there is a strain of uh, science called epigenetics where mm-hmm. I think they first found the gene in the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And now they have found that gene in um, the Vietnam veterans and yep. They also say that it runs through people of color that whose um, ancestors have come through the Middle Passage. We're carrying trauma that we don't even know we have. That's right. <laughs> and we can't defend against it because we've been silenced. 
by the absence of uh, many things which we started in the first place, you know. Mm. So I guess that was, would be what I would add to that. The, the study of epigenetics is so fascinating to me that this brand new kind of science suggesting that DNA and genes are, have been affected by just traumatic events in the past, and now mm-hmm. people carry it. It, it's yeah. it's not surprising it, it, to me, but it's it's unbelievable. It's mind blowing to think of what how that affects people to this day, genetically. And if you think about reparations in in um, the the persons of color communities, because I I think um, the Native Americans probably need ref- reparations as much as anybody. Um, but when you think about that, it it is something that um, needs to be addressed in terms of how do we help um, bring us to, to a place where we're not othering and where communities that have been uh, so devastated, not only by this trauma that they're carrying that they don't even know about, but continues in other ways. It just morphs. It doesn't go away. It just turns into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we um, use our, our efforts to repair the breach by helping people who have been traumatized and carried it for so many centuries Mm. without even knowledge of their history to give them voice to um, talk about it. Mm. So. And I I love this conversation because the reminder of it's an uncovering of truth. There's nothing to remarket or recreate or to redefine. Uh, It's just uncovering the truth of what's always been there. And I think that's so important when it comes to these kinds of things. I always kind of abide by the statement of elevating things to equalize them, to create that that common ground and to point to that. But it's not about recreating anything. It's just about pointing to the truth. Uh, Therese, in your book about contemplation and justice, in your epilogue, I just love this opening paragraph. And it's uh, really, really important and per- pertinent to what we're talking about right now. So I'd love to read that. You write... It seems that some people who call themselves contemplatives have merely found a way to justify their own procrastination or to explain their introversion or to defend their unwillingness to change in the face of injustice, remaining silent when there is a need to speak. I have learned that our practice of contemplation requires integration into our callings and lifestyles. So that contemplation can be whole, it must consist of both inward solitude and reflection and an outward response to the situations in which we find ourselves present and awake. And I just, I love that, especially that end part. I mean, we all know what we're present and awake to. And, you know, I do think that there's many times and ways in which people can really use and distort the contemplative path in a way that allows them or think, you know, they think uh, justifies them not speaking to something that clearly is to be spoken to. Mm. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to uh, how we can discern when contemplation is supportive of activism and when it's actually a hindrance and kind of just the balance of, I mean, obviously this book is entirely the recognition of merging those things that they coexist and they coexist beautifully when we're not uh, distorting them and using them falsely. But I wonder if you could speak to kind of that. Yes, and 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 I guess that that's what I would say is that the idea Mm -hmm. that contemplation exists apart from action is incorrect. 
Amen. And and, th yeah. and those that sort of put it forth that way are not treat are not teaching or um, pushing forth true contemplation because all contemplation should be followed by action. They 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 are there for mm -hmm. one another. The the reason to to contemplate anything would be to have clarity about what action you take next. Yeah, that that um, verse that you just I mean that sentence that you just read from the chapter comes out of my frustration <laughs> <laughs> comes out of my frustration um being in contemplative organizations where um I, I think what they're doing is more procrastination than really living out <laughs> contemplation mm -hmm. they they, ca they have to contemplate you're rushing us <laughs> we yes. we need to do this in a contemplative manner <laughs> you know and some things are just clear, at least to me, some things are just clear. So once we are clear what the issue is, whether it's diversity in your organization or, you know, um, diversity in the, the curriculum so that, you know, it does include the experiences of other people, you know, those kinds of things. Once you realize that's the issue, you don't need to sit and ponder it very much longer. You need to take the next step, step which is action. Because mm -hmm. I'm trying to talk to you, um, respond to you, um, I want to find that, that, you know, I just carry this around with me. I went to Houston and we took a tour of some of the uh, spiritual sites in Houston. And I went to Rock, Rothke Chapel and um, found this book in there that was it, it was an anthology called Contemplation and Action. The editor, whose name was Ella Meyer Zola, he writes, modern humans are constantly tempted to seek spiritual life in sheer method or else in some kind of blind rapture ringing with spontaneity and rich in creativity. Contemplation needs both. Method in itself leads only to disputation and quarrels. On the other hand, inspiration in itself without method will lead to vain strivings toward creativity for its own sake. Mm. And, and I have been carrying, it's been um, maybe seven years ago <laughs> since I visited that, but I keep that book near me. It's one that... Um, I would go back and reference often, and I think that that is the key. And and he talks about in that chapter how action um, has something to do with sacrifice, and so that um, contemplation with action is the sacrifice that one takes in life in order to correct those things that need to be corrected. Some of this conversation, I couldn't help but think about uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail in 63, where he, he taught, talks a lot about the white moderate. And, um, yes. you know, one line <laughs> in particular has really struck me where, where he writes, he's writing about this, and he says, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, who lives by a it mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Oof. Yeah, that's that's white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, one of the things that I've been learning, I'm serving as liaison for race and reconciliation in my presbytery, National Capital Presbytery. And so we've been learning together 
a lot of things. And one of the things that I've learned is that racism, at least in the West, uh, is based very deeply in Christianity, things yes. um, that have come uh, from Christianity. The first book of Genesis during creation and uh, humankind is created and God says, um, I have created, created you in uh, my image or our image actually is what yeah, he says, right. our yeah. image. And then later he tells Adam and Eve to go and populate the earth and to have dominion. It seems to me that uh, Europe, people of European descent take that way too seriously <laughs> um, to the point where they where it is I think the basis of white supremacy and it and it is the basis of a lot of other actions like apartheid and ways co co colonialism in in Africa and in India and perhaps other Philippines other places what I heard James Cone say not too long before he passed away uh, he was a speaker at one of our churches here in the Presbytery, and he talked about he talked about his experience growing up in Arkansas, where it was segregated. So he was in a black community, and he went to a black church and everything. But how much love and community he felt in that setting, and that what we needed to consider or contemplate. He didn't use that word, but I will say what we need to contemplate is the image of God in blackness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. And just like we were talking about earlier with the uh, not just poor representation in art and icons, but completely false representation. You know, and people think these things are, are small and not a big deal and minimal, and but they're huge. I mean, the ways that these impact and create a perpetual way in which people assume that's what a person looked like, then it's just, it becomes more and more embedded in society and this falsity becomes a part of Christianity. And I, and I contend that somebody, not you, but somebody did that on purpose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. and, and what I've learned as I learned uh, as well as you and others, as I learn about what white supremacy is and um, how it perpetuates itself, it doesn't really even include all white people. <laughs> it includes those people at the top, you know, so. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges I think for for whites is that we are, we are blind to white supremacy. On purpose. <laughs> we, well, yeah, well, we've been blinded on purpose and then if to the extent that we accept it and we perpetuate it, then yes, yeah. we and and you know I think I've heard this way before now, but um, it's come up more recently. I can't remember 
who exactly said it, but the thing about if you can make the lowest white person feel that they're better than um, those that you disparage and hold in the minority, then they will go along with whatever the program is. So the way our culture works now is that some of us, and I'm not one of the worst of the conditions that African-Americans may live in. So maybe in some ways I even have privilege. But, you know, even in the overall culture that is being oppressed like African-Americans, there is a certain segment that is allowed to feel comfortable and and safe and that they have gotten to where they need to be. And then they work against the majority who are kept you know, oppressed and poor and in danger and under police rule all the time. This may be a good place to do this. I'd like to share two things, I think. One having to do with the separation of contemplation and action. That word actually separates them. Mm. The word and. Mm. Uh, it makes contemplation on one pole and action at the other pole. And I'm, I'm one who's always saying what we need to learn to do is all come closer to the center and keep mm. the two poles balanced <laughs> in some kind of way. Brian McDermott, who spoke in Louisville at um, the SDI educational event in 2015, not the first time he's done it, but the, the time that it really, you know, hit me in the head was he talks about contemplation in action mm. instead of and action. And I, I try to use that uh, phrase more often. But then he after he spoke, he sent us, we were, well, we were at our tables, we fell into silence to contemplate his words. And then we broke into uh, groups to talk about what he said. And I wrote the following. We are both connected and separate. We dwell in both, but we are not meant to stay in either. Separateness allows us to become aware and deepen. Then we are called to remain in that deepened place as we enter the connectedness of the universe. The dilemma is to know when to remain separate and aware of oneself and when to integrate that more deepened self with the flow and connectedness of the universe. And then <clears throat> because of our uh, conversation on Facebook recently, and then preparing for this, I wrote, I don't rhyme, <laughs> but I, I wrote my <laughs> own poem. And it says, it's about that uh, trauma, that silencing um, that happens to my ancestors and comes to now. Their language was taken. Their culture, they were forbidden to be in community with one another. Complete and devastating silence. So in the belly of the ship, they moaned. In the silence of the hush hollow, they shouted into a barrel. In hidden community, they sang songs of the day's trauma. And they were comforted in the call and response. They did not have language for their God who was supreme. They were forbidden to read, their native tongue confounded by separation. So some made a commitment not to read until the relationship with mystery was consummated. When the book was opened, they embraced Jesus, not the Christ. They were familiar with his suffering and they knew their walk was right. 
there they embraced blackness as the Imago Dei. Beautiful. Therese, a lot of times we like to ask our guests about hope. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned a kind of hope of, you know, that people find that balance between contemplation and action and, you know, contemplation and justice. And I wonder, what is your hope for your work in the world and, you know, between your writing, between your speaking, between everything? Just what what's your hope that that people take away from hearing from you or reading your work? You made me think of Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible (laughs) for many reasons. It's gotten me through a lot. But this one phrase that Paul says, who hopes for what they already have? So, you know, a lot of people, they, they say, I'm hopeless, you know, but you're hopeless because you don't have something. But that should create hope in you that one day you will get there. And the deeper I get into this subject of racism and this othering that we do to each other, I think it is a matter of evolution. And I think we are in that process, actually, and more aware of it than perhaps our ancestors ever were of that process. But I don't think that I'm going to be the conclusion of it. As I often say, this is not a marathon and it's not a sprint. It's a relay race. And so at some point we pass the baton. And I'm just hoping, I turned 65 last year in November, so I'm starting to think about, you know, I probably have less time than I had before. Maybe hopefully I have less time because that would be a lot (laughs) if I lived 65 more years or longer. (laughs) But but what my my hope is, is that um, I make a difference, a contribution in that relay race so that I'm ready to cry now. (laughs) So that my grandchildren um, meet a different world than the one that I came through. That's a wonderful hope. (laughs) And and listening to you and hearing your story and your witness inspires me to want to do whatever I can do so that your grandchildren meet a better world, too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) I, you know, thank you. It takes all of us. It's not any particular person I think we all and some people may never make it you know to but those of us who are awake and aware have to keep working on that and contributing Ibram Kendi who wrote Stamp from the Beginning says there's no such thing as a non-racist you're either racist or anti-racist so if you're not operating to change something then you fall in the previous category. So I think we all uh, who are awake and aware and conscious need to keep striving for that with hope. (laughs) I I love what we're talking about. And part of me is thinking, how do we wake up the people that are not awake? I also recognize I have to, there are things in my life I'm not awake to. And I Mm -hmm. think that's important, right? Because as much as, you know, it's just, it could be a blanket statement about people who aren't awake at, in some sense I'm I'm also othering those people and I'm also not aware of quote unquote the plank in my own eye so you know you'll you probably see I have a whole lot of people in my head so you reminded me now of uh, Cynthia yeah. Winton Henry who is a co-founder for interplay which is a, a body modality 
but a contemplative. Um, but she's, among other things, a, a dancer, and um, she's also a theologian. But she once said that when we become awake, we want to wake everybody else up. But if you find, if you encounter somebody that's asleep, don't try to wake them up. There's a reason why they're asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, I think what she's trying to say is that waking some people up may not bring the results that you hope for and could be a traumatic event for them mm-hmm. for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it could potentially put significant energy towards good, towards something that's in vain. And yeah. But we can continue to pray and hope (laughs) and and even put that in I kind of think you know I'm not going to encounter a whole lot of people in this world but I kind of think that I'm doing my part to encounter some people and they will encounter some people and Mm. so it's sort of like a vibration it works its way out so Therese a question that we pose to pretty much all of our conversation partners and I kind of have a suspicion what your answer might be but you could surprise me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the question is, is there is there a person living or dead, famous or known only to you, who who has been a hero for you in terms of your relationship with silence? Well, I have three answers and one will be familiar, okay. <laughs> I think. But um, I talked about the first one when we first began. The first silence hero is my grandmother. Mm. Uh, I think that I am here where I am now because of her. And the second one would be Howard Thurman and the way he has been able to embody silence in in a black body. And the third hero, I don't know that these are in order now that I look at the third one, but the the last heroes heroes were the enslaved Mm. um, Mm. who kept silence in the hush hollows, in the cabins, in the woods traveling the Underground Railroad and not needing the Bible to encounter the God, uh, encounter God for themselves. You bring me to tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm also very struck by the connection of your answer to hope and to this, and that you mentioned your grandmother. And when you talked about hope, you mentioned your grandkids. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for the courageous and important work you're doing and such an honor to talk with you and to have you on today thank you for your good work well thank you this was a joy I mean I have never experienced I feel connected to you and that I've done as I mentioned before I've done this before I've never experienced this connection that I'm Mm -hmm. feeling with the three of you (laughs) thank you for having me well, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so it's much. It's been a delight talking to you. Definitely. Thank you so much. Blessings. Blessings to you. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit Carl McCollman. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. 
please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.